Good morning, everybody. Um, before I begin, I just need to check something, please. Um, is there anybody here named Muriel? No Muriels? Very good. I can carry on then. Oh, you'll see why in a moment. <laughs> is there a closet Muriel? <laughs> That's okay. I think you'll know it's not... Um, what? <laughs> Colin Muriel McGrail. <laughs> ah, got it, right. Okay. If I began my sermon today by maybe just sort of leaning on the pulpit like this and sticking my finger over here with an arrogant look on my face and saying, now listen up, you lot. I'm sick and tired of standing up here and the knowledge that you guys are not listening. I'm guessing there'd be some pretty annoyed faces in the pews. But if I started brothers and sisters in Christ, as I generally do, and went on to discuss exactly the same topic um, in more reasonable tones, then no unreasonable offense would be caused. I say unreasonable offense because if I'm not offending you, if I'm not causing you some pain, then really, I'm not doing my job. <laughs> and I should start like that because then I'm putting myself in the same place as anyone else. A sinner saved by grace, a, a traveler of life with the same dust on my clothes and the same bruises from the same mistakes as anyone else. That's truly what I am. And this is how James is addressing us today. Brethren, he says, our text for today is James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Please can you turn there now. Let's listen to what he has to say because it concerns one of our favorite pastimes that I believe we will be shocked to see has consequences much greater than we thought. So, James 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? Well, that all seems pretty obvious, you might be saying. I shouldn't say nasty things about other people because that makes me judgmental and I know the Bible says I mustn't judge others. Right, we're done here. Tease out the back, let's have a chat. And by the way, have you heard what Muriel and her husband are up to? <laughs> hmm? Unfortunately, you've paid for the full half hour and that's what you're going to get. And it is Muriel and her husband that I want to talk to you about since it's in that apparently innocent place that great offense to God begins. So we're going to look at this passage in four parts. Okay, How we break the law, the effect of the law, the owner of the law, and if I can bend my pinky properly, the power of the law. So, to start with, I need to make a point. Hearing all this talk about the law, I'm certain that some of you are going to be saying, hang on a minute, I'm saved, so I'm not under the law anymore. Well, of course that's right in the sense of salvation, but we are never in the position 
to deny that God has given us rules by which we are expected to live as his children. And this is the sense that I'm going to be speaking today. Okay, So I'm not talking about law with a capital L. So, to start with, let's look at the start of the sin, because that's what it is, how we break the law. What does James mean in real life when he says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren? Does this mean I mustn't go around saying that Muriel is fat and her husband is stupid? Or do you know that I saw Muriel visiting a fortune teller at the Gypsy Fair last weekend? Or even really something evil, you know, like... um, Muriel is a witch and her coven meets every Tuesday to eat raw meat and howl at the moon. These are all pretty obvious things that I'm sure none of us would do. But what all of us do do, and probably without thinking, is to exchange those little tidbits about each other and things that we've seen about organizations even in general conversation. This is a thing called slander. A name we probably don't want to hear because nobody likes a slanderer and nobody wants to be known as one. So we can be sure of what we're talking about. The dictionary gives us an exact definition of this word. What is slander? Well, it's a false report made maliciously to injure anyone, especially when it's spoken or to make false reports about. Okay, that's what the dictionary says. So, what does the Bible say about slander? Well, how much time do you have? I've got a very long list here. And um, you'll be pleased to know that I'm not going to go through all of these verses today. But I just want to pick, pick a few here that you can see that, that are underlined. Okay, where does slander come from? It comes from an evil heart. It often arises from hatred. Idleness leads to slander. The wicked are attracted and addicted to slander. It's a characteristic of the devil. (laughs) It's not something I'd like to be. Those who who indulge in slander are fools. Alice, what should ministers' wives do? Mm, They should avoid it. (laughs) Saints should keep their tongues from it. It has the effect of separating friends. It causes deadly wounds, strife, discord amongst brethren, murder, Imagine, slander can cause murder. Men will be called to give account for their slander, and they will be punished for it. Pretty serious. It's a well-established principle that when we're trying to interpret Scripture as a guide for our actions, we have to look at two things. We have to look at, firstly, context, and we have to look at frequency. Okay, what does the text say around what we are studying. Okay? We shouldn't just pick out a verse or a section of a verse and say, well, that means X. We have to look at the stuff around it so that we understand the context in which that's put. Okay? That's, that's one part. The second thing is frequency. Okay? Does the Bible say a lot about the subject, or can we find only one little partial bit of a verse somewhere in the back of, I don't know, Ezekiel or something weird? Okay? And that's the only thing we can, we can find about this idea. And that's the issue of frequency. When you look at this giant list, it leaves no doubt at all that slander is bad. Okay? It meets both of those, those qualifications. It's described as destructive, deceitful, deluding, and devouring. 
who got hit by slander? Joseph, David, the Jews, Christ, Paul, Stephen, lots of early Christians, lots of us. And they're all specifically named as having slander hurled at them. Okay? And who was doing the hurling? Well, the devil, revilers, hypocrites, and false leaders. And none of these are a group that I would have any wish to be associated with. Christians are warned against it. We are told we must endure it. And I think that's notable because it means that we must bear it, but we must not return it. And lastly, we're told that we must lay it aside. I find that to be a very interesting description. Why are we told to put something aside? Well, it occurred to me that if we're carrying something around, okay, and we just lay it down in front of us on the ground, well, it's still there in front of us. It's still in our way. We have to go around it or we have to step over it. It's still there. It's still bothering us. But if we're carrying something we want to get rid of and we put it aside, okay, well, then we can just carry on. We're unimpeded. It's gone. It's out of our lives. And that's why God gives us this instruction to lay it aside. What wisdom God puts in His Word, just in little places for us to find. So He's saying, look at the slander you and I are carrying. Recognize it. Put it down beside you. Don't look back and carry on and run your race. Let's take a step back to Muriel now. I must say, it looks as though she's had a few too many pies, you know. The dictionary definition I gave you included that, that word malicious. Okay, slander, a false report made maliciously to injure anyone. And that might seem like a very, very strong word to use that we don't deserve to have applied to what we say in general conversation about others. Am I really just talking about a thing called gossip, which is apparently a less harmful thing? Well, is it? Here's what Proverbs 26 has to say about gossip. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no talebearer, strife ceases, as charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles, and they go down into the inmost body. And that's just one of another long list of verses about gossip. It seems that the reality of gossip is it's just as bad as slander as far as God is concerned. It's just the way that we've come to understand that meaning of that word in modern times that gives it a bit of a better reputation. But in either case, we should just not do it. I had a really good think about this malicious word, trying to understand the attitude of my own heart to see if I was deserving of the term. And what I found was that if I'm honest, I have to agree that my motives for sharing things about other people, well, they aren't good. I want, to see, I want people to see me as being a bit special, to have some information that others don't. Maybe to seem to be a bit more better informed than other people. Or maybe just even to fill a space in, in the conversation. I thought about that last one. I thought, what a horrible, horrible waste of somebody else's character to just use it to fill in a space in a conversation. The big problem is that I'm selfishly spending the currency of another person's reputation. It's just like opening up their life wallet 
and taking stuff out without their permission. As we all know, reputation is fiendishly difficult to establish, but frighteningly easy to lose. Who am I to take what I did not earn and did not deserve? If you ask yourselves those same questions, where do you stand? The truth is that ultimately no good comes from gossiping or slander. So they do deserve strong words and condemnation. So this is where we break God's law, particularly when we think about Jesus' specific instruction to love our neighbors as ourselves. James is also pointing out through his use of that word brethren that slandering anyone is bad, but slandering your brother? You're picking on those closest to you. That's much worse. Why are you turning on a member of your heavenly family? What example is this of the love that we are supposed to be known by? Let's move on. What is the effect of the law? James says, He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. To start off with, I'd like to state that James is not suggesting that we shouldn't go to a Christian brother or sister who is sinning and confront them with that sin. It's not that kind of judging he is condemning because we are specifically instructed by God to go and do this work elsewhere in Scripture. Let's be very sure, however, that any sin that we name is not one defined by legalism and not Scripture, such as, for example, oh, say, women shouldn't wear a particular color of lipstick in church because then we're using man's standards and not God's and that will make us judges of the law. James is taking us to a place that we often do not go because we are mostly concerned with temporal matters, things that affect us right here and now. Our thought process is something like this. I've dished out that juicy little titbit about Muriel the listener is suitably impressed. Hmm, what can I say next to hold their attention? That's the level we often think at. However, we should think past our own selfish moments to consider that much bigger picture, the eternal consequences of our actions. And in this case, those consequences, they are just huge and unexpected from an activity that's widely practiced and condoned by society in general. You know, we might be aware that what we're saying about Muriel has the power to hurt her, although that's not our specific intention. At least I hope it isn't. And we probably wouldn't want her to know that Dave Tastard specifically is telling the whole church that she is fat. That's generally about as far as our thought processes go. At this point, we don't really think that what we're doing is very serious. But it is. As James points out, there is a logical and clear progression here. God requires us to love our neighbor. That is his law, and we are expected to obey it. Not in an unreasoning way, but because we recognize his right to rule us, flowing from his wisdom and power. We know that we owe him a great debt for rescuing us from our sin. And mostly, we should obey because He loves us 
and we love Him in return. Therefore, when we act in ways that do not show love for others, we're doing something a lot more than just disobeying. By making our own judgment of the right thing to do, we are actually rejecting God's instruction. We're saying, in effect, that we believe we know better than God. We don't think much of His laws, and we are denying those attributes that make Him sovereign. Well, who do we think we are? How could we possibly imagine that we as sinful humans could improve on God's perfection and usurp His sovereignty? That is big time sin. I tell you that I stand so condemned and convicted by God's words because I'm horrified that I do this a lot. A scenario that I haven't investigated today is the really terrible idea that we actually do want to hurt Muriel. And we're not going to go there today because it's very obvious that that is bad. I wanted us instead to look at something that is apparently innocent and recognize it for what it is. And then go and do something about it. Lastly, while James has specifically picked on that word slander here, I want to point out that his advice stands for pretty much any place where we choose to act in a contrary way to what we know God wants us to act. To move on to our third point, who owns the law? Who determines what we should do and say and think in any situation? Is it Christians? Is it all mankind? Does it stand alone as some kind of all-encompassing cosmic wisdom? I saw a good term for it in a science fiction book I read recently called The Void That Binds. Very mysterious. No! Of course the owner of the law is God. The eternal God. The everlasting God. The God of glory. God in heaven. The living God. The King. Ancient of days, creator and maker. Sovereign Lord, God Almighty, God of hosts, Lord God Most High, Great God. He has many names, but one character and one law. And as James says in verse 12, there is one law giver. Now, why have I spent time stating the obvious? In answer, here are a few questions for you and for me, around our usual human tendency to challenge authority, the stuff that we often consider when deciding whether to obey or not. First of all, we think about stature. Okay? Do you always recognize God as all those things in that list I've just read? Do you, do I acknowledge Him in all we do? Is He, is he big enough for us? No, we don't. We need to be reminded who is in charge, and I certainly speak for myself when I say that that is really sad. Secondly, status. Do we appreciate that the owner of the law has the right to enforce it and state its terms and determine appropriate punishment for breaking it? Matthew Henry's commentary on this passage in James includes this statement. Those who are most ready to set up for judges of the law generally fail most in their obedience to it. I could put this more simply as the less you obey, the more that you believe the rules don't apply to you. 
God has given us a conscience to remind us of His law. It burns and pricks us continually when we are disobedient. Isn't it bizarre that when the most obvious thing to do to relieve the pain is to repent and obey, that we what? We try to change the rules to suit ourselves. To judge the law as being unsuitable for our own position and to make a new one as an ointment for our burning consciences. You know, that's like watching two kids arguing over who won. We've all seen it. One will say, that's not in the rules. And the other one replies, well, that's how I play it. Yeah, that's just like us. Living our lives in that way is self-deception, since a time of judgment is coming for all mankind, and our interpretations of what is right will be absolutely useless at that time. Thirdly, strength. How do we rate the character of the owner of the law? Can they be trusted to be fair? Do they have the wisdom to create the right rules? Is there enough muscle to enforce them? If the person sitting next to you in the pew tells you to do something that you don't want to do, what's going to happen? Can they make me, you will first ask yourself. Can I fight them? Maybe you can prevail with a man, but you cannot fight God. It is futile, and you will lose. Perhaps that person next to you is one of integrity and wisdom. So, you will cheerfully obey. They have that special strength of character that convinces us that it is safe and right to follow them. And this, we are sure, is how it is with God. Lastly, stability. Will the giver and enforcer of the law apply it in the same way to everyone, irrespective of who they are? Or is the law going to be constantly tweaked to reflect new circumstances? Or was it so well drafted originally that it will stand up in all trials? In common with other democratically elected governments, we have a body of men and women whose business it is to determine the laws of our land. Whilst they do argue, like children a lot of the, a lot of the time, the outcome of their debate is largely good. But one thing is certain. Thanks to political differences, men's laws are always changing. They lack true stability. God's law isn't at all like that. It reflects His character. It is perfect. It is done once and it stands for all time. We can rely on it to be wisely drafted, to always be the same, applied equally to everyone, and that the punishment for infringement or reward for obedience, well, they don't vary. When we recognize the owner of the law fully, we should be encouraged to live it. Praise God for His law and the stability that it promises. Let's move on now to the power of the law, which is the last part of this passage. The whole of verse 12 reads, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? Well, there's a little word that came to mind here. It's this word consequences. It's a word and worse an action that we seem to be trying to remove from our society. We have things like name suppression, community service, home detention, 
And they're all good ideas, and they were all very well meant, but they're often manipulated by the cynical to help them avoid real consequences, the kind that, that hurt and that get our attention. But God isn't bound by political correctness. He has two promises for us and the power to fulfill them. The first is that if we sin, and we all do, if we do not repent and turn to God, then our fate after death is definitely going to be unpleasant. I'm going to read you quite a long passage from Jeremiah here. And I, I hope that you can, you can pay attention to the whole thing because it, chain, it contains a very chilling and vivid description of God's wrath against sinners. Therefore prophecy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and utter His voice from His holy habitation. Can you imagine that? One day, you're out walking your dog, and suddenly God is going to roar from the heavens. Yeah? He will roar mightily against His fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise will come to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead His case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind will be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. And at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Wail, shepherds, and cry, Roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a precious vessel, and the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a wailing of the leaders to the flock will be heard, for the Lord has plundered their pasture, and the peaceful dwellings are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He has left his lair like the lion, for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. I would not wish to face such power and anger. Would you? And we have a choice. Scripture often speaks concerning how sin brings about separation from God. Separation that for an unsaved person will be eternal. It is my suspicion, and I use the word suspicion because I don't have scriptural evidence, that actually this separation is going to be the ultimate torment, never mind the fires of hell. Imagine that you die and you go to meet God. At that moment, face to face with Him, you will experience the full potential of the relationship that He intended for you. God's perfect love and acceptance as His child. You can see it and you can feel it. That's His second promise. The promise for those who are saved through grace. Imagine that moment. How much you will long for your Heavenly Father's approval. 
But then in an instant, you are confronted by your sin and you realize it's full of offense and shame. Think about how much pain it will bring then when God angrily dismisses you from His presence forever and condemns you to hell. Think about what you will have lost. Now think about this alternative scenario where all is the same until the moment of judgment. But as you, as you writhe in your disgrace, Jesus steps forward and says, Father, this one, this one is mine. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. What fate will you choose? Salvation or destruction? Repent of your sin. Accept Jesus as your Savior today. Do not, and you have made your choice. It's hard to move on from the power of that picture. But there is one final thing that we have to do, and that is to practically address how we are going to deal with this, this sin in our own lives before we finish today. And please, this is the end of the sermon. You've been listening for a while. The section is short, but it, it's very, very important to us because this is how we have to live out God's life, live, live out God's word in our lives. Okay, so I have a problem. How do I stop this practice of slandering? In my studies, I came across these three questions that we should answer before indulging in criticism of others. Okay? What good does it do your brother? What good does it do yourself? What glory for God is in it? Aren't these questions just fantastic? Because they just penetrate right to the heart of the matter. If you can answer all three of those questions positively, then by all means, go ahead and slander to your heart's delight. But I really find it hard to believe that you'll find any circumstance where that will be truthfully possible. I've often been in groups where I've heard Christian brothers and sisters asking how they can make a difference in their work and social environments, to be seen as believers, to be different. Well, here's a great way. Just refuse to participate in any slander. If you hear it, if possible, go and reproach the slanderer. You don't have to take your Bible and beat them on the head. They won't appreciate that. Just something like, hey, come on. You wouldn't like anybody to be talking about you like that behind your back, would you? Don't save juicy information to pass it on later. Lay it aside and move on. You can also pray for the person who is being slandered. How about if you recognize that you've done this yourself, you've done it to somebody? Well, if you've slandered someone, you should actually go and apologize to them. You should ask for their forgiveness and you should ask, also ask for forgiveness from God. Be on your guard. In the preparation of this sermon, I have been enormously challenged because gossip and slander are such a normal thing to do. You almost 
don't think about doing them. And to my shame, I have found myself deserving of that term. I've found myself starting to think about doing that. And sometimes even I'm right in it when I notice. It might be hard to stop, but God has called us to something higher and he has given us both the motivation and the means to climb. And most of all, as James asks us through the generations, who are you to judge one another? Let us pray. Father, your word truly is sharp. It pierces us. Lord, I pray that in that piercing would come about real change. That as we would go from here, we would be different people. People that show your character, that show your glory, and show what you intended for your people to be like. I pray that you would strengthen us and enable us to do these things in this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.